Hi, everyone, and welcome to Nella's Tin Trunk Podcast. In part one, I spoke of four glorious African rivers, the Nile, the Kunene, the Luangwa, and the Mara. If you haven't listened to that one yet, you can go and begin there if you like. Today, we talk about three others, two mighty and two grand and mysterious. Running mainly from the Ikelenge district in northwestern Zambia, right on the border with the Democratic Republic of Congo, but with a secondary source in Angola, just like the Kunene, to the mouth in the Indian Ocean at Mozambique flows the mighty Zambezi. And indeed, this river demands emotion. The Zambezi is the fourth largest river in Africa, about 1,600 miles long, after the Nile, the Congo, and the Niger. It is the longest east-flowing one in Africa, and the largest one flowing into the Indian Ocean. The Zambezi forms the natural border between Zambia to the north and Zimbabwe to the south. This border is at its most dramatic when the water plummets almost 400 feet over the edge of Victoria Falls. When you combine the width of 5,600 feet with the height of about 400 feet, you get the world's largest sheet of falling water. And what an impressive sight, twice as high and twice as wide as Niagara, to give an example, and much less touristy. When the river is in spate, the spray is such that it looks like smoke coming high into the air from the ground and is called Moshiwatunwa in the local Lozi language, which means the smoke that thunders. The first time I saw it from the plane, I thought it was smoke from an enormous fire. During my first years living in Africa, I dismissed Victoria Falls, where the Zambezi River plummets into the gorge, with the towns of Zambia's Livingston and Zimbabwe's Victoria Falls on either side, close enough together to walk across the famous Victoria Falls Bridge, by the way. I'm not sure why I wasn't as intrigued with Vic Falls as other places probably because impressive waterfalls are usually tourist attractions, and that can mask the natural beauty and power that they hold. And yes, there are certainly tourists visiting the falls, whether you are on the Zambia side or the Zim side. You can walk a path along the edge of the falls, watching the water across the gorge plummet down. Approaching this path, you're in town, and you walk past vendors and gathered people, much like you do when visiting the great wonders of Egypt a contrast of time, and in some ways a lessening of the experience, if not handled well. But there are actually not very many tourists, and ultimately this is not very important. What is important is seeing the power of this river. In my visits there, I may come across others also walking the path, similarly clad in waterproof ponchos, and laughing as the breeze brings a sudden downpour from the spray. It is a mesmerizing show of water, spray, and natural cliff, whether the river is super full or very low. And on that note, the sweet spot is in the middle. If it's too high, you really can't see the beautiful contours of the cliffs, the flowers and plants growing on them, appearing and disappearing with the mist in the breeze. And if it's too low, you don't get to screech and get soaked. 
I feel that if safariing in Zambia or Zimbabwe, some time at the falls is a must. I love to have people stay upriver rather than at the big hotels in town near the falls. Being along the big, wide section of the river that reaches almost a mile across in some parts is a beautiful contrast to the drama of the falls. You can even stay on islands on the Zambezi, which creates a special relationship with the river and all her flourishing life. Below the falls begins the middle section of the Zambezi's life, and here you find one basalt gorge after another. If you get up in the air in a helicopter, strongly, strongly recommended, you can see them clearly, and you can even see the beginning of the next gorge where the falls will happen next. The white water in this part of the river is world famous. There are over 75 species of fish that call the waters of the Zambezi home, including the famous tigerfish, who truly have ginormous teeth. I have no idea what the estimate of hippo numbers in the whole Zambezi is. If you know, please email me. But there are single pods with more than 60, and let's put it this way, they are everywhere. So are the crocs. You find lineups of basking crocs in the sun. Nile crocodiles, by the way, in honor of that other great river we talked about last time, and that sadly doesn't have any left. The birds that depend on this river number around 400. Some of my favorites are the kingfishers, the bee eaters, the African fish eagle, the herons, egrets, falcons, the African skimmer, and my very favorite, the Pell's fishing owl. Walking beside the river, there is a sense of calm as the morning mists rise, the hippos yawn, and the birds begin to sing. In the afternoon, I love to go out on a boat and watch the light change, literally every five minutes. The birds fish to eat, and if he's with me, my husband fishes to release. Getting onto the water of the Zambezi is a must. You can do so in canoes too. The best area for this is, in my opinion, on the Zambia side, where you have small channels of tributary waters. Canoeing down these is magic. They are narrow and tree-lined, with animals and birds coming to drink. I've canoed past elephants and buffalo, and lots of antelopes and birds doing this. I've also canoed past crocodiles basking on the bank and hippos, lots of hippos. Once I was telling a story to my guide when we passed by a hippo. The river was narrow and we were close. Hippos rest with their back feet on the riverbed and their heads slowly bobbing up and down as they breathe above and then rest underwater. As we went around the bend in the river, the hippo was doing just this. He was in the deeper water. We were in such shallow water that if I had stepped out of the canoe, I would have only been shin deep. Still, when the hippo went under and became invisible, I, needless to say, stopped telling my story. The guide laughed and said, why so quiet, Nella? There's a hippo right there, I whisper yelled. A nice quiet canoe ride down the river? Sometimes. Also a huge adrenaline hit if passing by a hippo or an elephant towering above you on the shore. If you want to visit this river, you cannot go wrong in places like Mana Pools and the Sappy Concession where I am as I write this piece, in fact. They are in Zimbabwe. Just across the river is the equally wonderful Lower Zambezi National Park in Zambia, where there are no giraffe, rather mysteriously. 
consensus seems to be that the long, graceful legs of the giraffe could not manage the very steep escarpment into the Zambezi River Valley Basin. In these areas, you have some of the best trees in all of Africa, fig and baobab and acacias, with the albida being especially yummy for elephants, who famously raise up on their hind legs to stretch long, and that means long, and grab the tasty fresh leaves at the top. You also have lion, leopard, and packs of Africa's most efficient hunter, wild dogs, my favorites. During dry times, the river is life, and huge numbers of animals, particularly of elephants, come to drink. On more occasions than I can count, I've had to wait in my room while elephants stride past on their way to the river before I can get to lunch. Needless to say, I'm happy to wait, and usually quite overfed on safari anyway. If you love fishing, then combining that with some time on Lake Kariba could work well. Kariba is formed by a dam on the Zambezi River and is the largest man-made reservoir in the world. The dam holds back 181 billion cubic meters of water and sometimes stretches to 2,150 square miles. At night, you can see hundreds of lights of the fishing boats coming to fish for capenta, a sardine-like fish introduced to the lake and widely enjoyed as a staple by the locals and me when I'm there. The electricity of the dam illuminates much of Zambia and Zimbabwe, and I'm guessing has as many pros and cons as Lake Nasser in Egypt has discussed last time. So it's mighty all right, this river, and not just because of the falls. Once upon a time, the earth changed shape. Volcanoes erupted and lava flowed. Earth quaked. About 35 million years ago, a great rift appeared that is in essence a series of continuous geographic trenches that run 4,300 miles from around Lebanon to Mozambique. The East African part of this rift runs from Ethiopia through Kenya and Tanzania and into Mozambique. The other branch, the rest Western Rift, is also called the Albertine Rift and flows through the Virunga Mountains, where our gentle giants, the gorillas, are found, into Congo, Uganda, Rwanda, and along the western edge of Tanzania, creating some of the deepest lakes in the world, like my favorite, Lake Tanganyika. The Western Rift created a great escarpment that cut off rivers heading to the sea at Mozambique, and this created an ancient super lake that covered the whole area. What is left of that is called Lake Mahadikadi, which I try to pronounce in Setswana as the Botswana or people of Botswana do, and which I'm butchering for sure, but it is rather fun. Anyway, Lake Mahadikadi is one of my favorite places in Botswana and is now an enormous salt pan, home to adorable meerkats and the fascinating Khoisan culture, among other things. The Okavango Delta in Botswana is the most famous result of the Albertine Rift. It is an alluvial fan and is unique for having no outlet and for being fresh water. Most rivers that do not reach the sea are saline because evaporation of the water, water leaves only salts, as in Lake Makadihadi. The reason the water stays fresh is that about 3% of it actually does flow out to Lake Ngami on the western side and Lake Mahadihadi on the eastern. 
It's a small outflow, but it keeps the water fresh. And in Africa, fresh water equals animals. It usually equals people too, but since this whole area floods annually, agriculture is not feasible. And this has created arguably the most pristine ecosystem on the continent. I'm forever in love with Botswana's Okavango Delta and owe this great rifting process a huge thank you for creating one of the most beautiful places we have, an absolute haven for animals. We can also thank the rains in Angola between October and May for bringing the waters south. Beginning in the Planalto highlands of Angola, over 1,000 kilometers away, a multitude of tributaries form the Cuito River, which flows into Namibia. Remember, the Kunene is also sourced in Angola's rainy highlands. The Cuito then joins the Kubango, which gains momentum and breadth to become the Okavango. By the time winter comes in Botswana, in June, July, and August, these waters have flowed into the delta. Every year, they take different paths in the floodplain, or alluvial fan, which create waterways, islands, and ultimately wildlife paradise. The water is crystal clear against the white sandy bottom. Animals congregate on land, and this creates a density on the islands, as well as the habits of some to walk or swim from island to island. On safari here, you too go from one island to the next, driving through the water in vehicles that have snorkels, as the water often flows right over the bonnet or hood. Cameras up, yells the guide, as you lift your stuff and your feet off the floor and the car undulates across the sandy ridges on the bottom. Islands are covered with beautiful trees, fan palms, sausage trees, baobabs, jackalberries, and enormous figs. You also go boating in the papyrus-lined channels and cruise around shallow bays on traditional makoros. Think Venetian gondolas for Africa, with an equally expert polar pushing you along. Don't underestimate the serenity and beauty of this experience. My favorite is in the evening with the golden light shining on the little things of Africa, like the various kinds of tiny, brightly colored reed frog, the camouflage nests of the African jacanas, the lily trotters with their long blue legs and huge feet, nicknamed the Jesus bird because they appear to walk on water as they move from one lily pad to the next, all kinds of birds, from the big and impressively colored saddle-billed storks to the tiny pieces of jewelry, the malachite kingfishers. Who needs the antiquated notion of the big five when you have these guys? Well, of course, you want to see the main players, and the Okavango River delivers these too. Wild dog and cheetah are a special sighting around here. Lions have adapted to hunt in the water, and the concentration of all of them on dry land during the flooded times makes seeing them easy too. I encourage all to visit during flooded times, but love Botswana all year long, really. My first time there, I was on a horse safari, cantering the horses through the clear waters in their hottest month, October. My favorite thing to do is watch elephants swim. They use their trunks as snorkels and cross from one delicious island of trees to the next. You see them doing this on the Zambezi, too. Rivers and elephants make for amazing sightings and favorite photos. And that brings us to our third and final river today, 
a small one in comparison with those discussed so far. Like the Mara River from part one, flowing, you might remember, from above my home all the way to the Mediterranean, the Owasso Nero is my local river and one dear to my heart. It flows from the Abadare Mountains, which rise to about 13,000 feet, or 4,000 meters, and are the bulk of our view from home across a particularly narrow section of the Rift Valley. Yes, him again. When the sun rises above those mountains, it shines straight into my bedroom. When the full moon rises from there, it is quite a sight. These mountains are layers of ecosystems one upon the other. At their base, around 6,000 feet above sea level, the valley floor is full of rich soil and agriculture dominates in small holding farms as well as big flower ones. This area grows roses for Europe, and it also grows a lot of vegetables, most for the locals at the markets, potatoes, spinach, beans, tomatoes, corn, as well as for export, mostly to the supermarkets in the United Kingdom. As you ascend, you get into a layer of bamboo forest. It is so dense that it's dark in there, and roads are carved narrowly through the towering reeds. As you drive through this part, you think about the elephants that live here and hope not to run into one on the road as, well, he will have right of way, and backing up is not so easy. At the top, it is open with moorland resembling Scotland. Heather tufts everywhere, water running off that finds gorges to plummet down. I love flying over one particular gorge that has two huge waterfalls, about a thousand feet high, gushing off into the valley below. You can see one of these flights if you scroll through the Tin Trunk Instagram. And this is where the Owasso Nero begins. It flows from these Abadare Mountains through the Lycipia region and into Samburu land. Like the Okavango, it does not end up in a larger body of water, but rather creates the Lorien Swamp. A bit less majestic sounding than the Okavango Delta, and indeed not nearly as bountiful, but still a very important river to the peoples and animals that live along it. Across the high plateau of Lycipia, at about 5,500 feet, you can see Mount Kenya rise in the distance to over 17,000 feet. It's the second highest freestanding mountain in Africa after Mount Kilimanjaro at over 19,000 feet. The Owasso cuts through this land and earns its name here, which means Black River in Ma, the language of the Maasai and the Samburu, for the silt, although it is usually more of a brownish color than black. The river is the lifeblood of communities and wildlife habitats. And as you probably know, the subtext of a sentence like that, water used by communities and wild animals, is a river under pressure. We could argue this for pretty much any river in the world, but we will keep this local and manageable, and I hope optimistic. The Owasso fluctuates a lot based on rains. Flash floods occur once the river moves into the lower Samburu area from the Lycipia area at 5,500 feet to about 2,600 feet, where the rocky valleys of Lycipia stop and the wide red desert sands begin. With climate change and more and more people, the catchment area of the Owasso has expanded by more than 1.5 million people in the past 40-some years only. The use of water for agriculture and pastoral lifestyles is essential to many. 
When the rains are good, there can be rapids and overruns of the banks. The positive is you can actually jump into the river from cliffs in Laikipia and do some rafting. The negative is that more than one tent in a camp, and occasionally the whole camp, can get washed away as the dry desert receives a rush of water. I was walking with my husband and son and our guide one day in the Samburu area, and we decided to cross the river and explore the other side. When we walked across, the river was up to our calves. About an hour later, we noticed the water was moving faster and the river was filling. We walked back to our side, where camp was, and moved through upper thigh-deep water in one hour. That night, the river roared past camp at full flood, and the next day was back to calf-deep. The upper sections are where the agro-pastoralism happens, and of course, this affects the lower parts, where, alas, most of the wildlife live in the Laikipia Reserve and the Samburu National Park and adjacent conservancies. In the latter, I have seen elephant families digging holes in the dry riverbed to get to the water underneath and sucking it up with their trunks until their activity creates a pool where they can play and spray themselves with the cooling mud. A sight worth seeing. I've also watched elephant herds, or parades as they're known collectively, swimming to get across in exactly the same spot. My first time in Kenya on a horse safari in 2004, I jumped off a waterfall into the Owasso Nero. It's about 30 feet high above a small pool. Sometimes a hippo lives in that pool, but not that day, thankfully. And needless to say, I didn't go first. Still, there were signs of hippos having been there. And it is from this that my question to kids coming on safari, would you swim in a river with hippo poo in it, came about. By the way, I get answers from no way to, it depends on how much, to sure, why not? Every time I take myself to the Owasso area in my Cessna, 5Y bad, I fly along watching the landscape change dramatically, looking for elephants, and pretty much always find some. For me, the Owasso and the bigger friends, the Zambezi and the Okavango, as well as the rivers in part one, represent the fragility of the ecosystems of Africa. The rivers show us that if we ignore the issues and just keep taking, farming water-dense crops, for example, then it is a short game, perhaps even, as Peter Beard coined, the end of the game. In Greek mythology, Achilles is the shape-shifting river god. He was the god of fresh water, the springs, and the oceans. He fathered the sirens with one of the muses. So here is to you, Achilles. May you keep Africa's rivers flowing and healthy for the animals and for the people. And may we mortal humans realize how vitally our own actions help or hinder you in that endeavor. Thanks for listening to Nella's Tintrung Podcast. Wishing you joyful adventures. Until next time.